Well, tonight we're going to be looking at Amos chapter 4. Amos chapter 4. This deals with, I, I titled it, Yet Have You Not Returned? <laughs> the Lord keeps on doing things to Israel, hoping, praying, <laughs> longing for them to come back to him, and they don't. And so if you turn your, in your Bibles to Amos chapter 4, now remember in chapter 1, he gave us a, a brief introduction about Amos himself. He was the one who uh, claims not to be a prophet or the son of a prophet, but God chose him to be a prophet. And so the, the word of God came through this simple man. He was a farmer, but it came with force and fire and frankness, really, in, in a big-time way. Um, and he began to give this revelation of the Lord's coming judgment all the way from chapter 1, verse 2, to the end of chapter 3. And so he informs them this is what's going to happen. And he, he blasted the enemies of Israel who were surrounding them. And uh, the verse there says that for three transgressions and for four, we explain that. That basically means this judgment is imminent. It's nothing that's going to change this. God would not turn away from judgment that was going to fall on them. And then in chapter 2, we just we saw how Amos switched from uh, the enemies of Israel and everything to Judah, and it was just a couple verses there because his main concern was Israel. He was mainly concerned with the ten northern tribes. Remember, Israel was divided at the time. In the north, he had ten tribes. In the south, he had two tribes. And uh, Judah was referred to the southern kingdom. And in the northern kingdom, I think one of the reasons why God focused on that first and had Amos focus on that first is because things were really bad, <laughs> were very bad in their society. Now, I don't mean economically. Remember, they were doing very well economically. Uh, they were blessed economically. They were prospering economically. Um, a lot of commentators say, you know what, the northern ten tribes is very much at the time that Amos prophesied and this wrote, was written in, into Scripture. It was much like Western culture today. Uh, it really was because we live in a, a country where basically we have a lifestyle in which we eat, we drink, we marry, we do what we want to do, and we don't like people telling us what to do or not to do. And so we have this freedom, even in the church, in Christ, but I think that freedom has been stretched a little too far. And we see that today in our society. And it's really ended, it's not ended yet, but it will end. It's, 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 it's reaped, let's put it that way, horrible results. You think with blessing, people would be more moral and they would be wanting to honor God, but just the opposite happens time and time again throughout the history of cultures. And so our everything from our court systems to legal systems, they're pretty much collapsed. They think they're not, but they are. It's, it's just a nightmare. Um, and everything we see in our modern-day culture that we would look at as believers and say, that's not good, was also condemned in ancient Israel. There's a very strong parallel here. We have prosperity, which we're very thankful for. We just celebrated Thanksgiving, right? We're very thankful for the prosperity we have. But unfortunately, that prosperity has not turned us to God. It's actually, what, turned us away from God in most cases. It's had the opposite effect. And so 
starting in chapter 4, going all the way to the chapter 9, verse 10 in this book. Many chapters. We're going to see from chapter 4 all the way to chapter 9 the reasons why the Lord is going to bring his judgment. He's going to show us the reasons. And it's, it's going to be helpful. It's going to be insightful. And um, I think instructive. It's, it's a very instructive section of God's word. And so tonight we're going to look at the first reason. And it's all in chapter 4. And the first reason is their return to the Lord did not happen. You have it there in, in your outline, verses 1 to 13 of chapter 4. No matter whether God blessed them, no matter whether God judged them, uh, no matter whether God warned them, we always said he warns them of pending judgment, whatever God did, it did not make any difference. They did not return to the Lord. It's, it's kind of hard to believe. But really, is it? Because sometimes our hearts are just as hard, are they not? You know, sometimes we want to do what we want to do. We don't care what God's Word says. We don't care what God says. And that hard ground needs to be broken up so that we can experience a kind of a, a fresh rain of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And a lot of us grow very hard. And it seems like a lot of times my experience with believers, the longer they're a believer, the harder they grow. They just grow accustomed to church. And, you know, at first when you're saved, boy, you're excited, you're learning new things, but, you know, give it 20 years and you're just coming to church, punching the clock every week, you know, and the Bible sits on the shelf collecting dust. Uh, but you bring it to church because that's what people do. Um, so we have this outward emotional response to God's word. And we maybe we were even involved in Christian ministry, ministry or some kind of activity, Christian activity. But down deep in heart, our hearts have grown hard because of one simple reason. In, in their case, it was because they did not return to the Lord. Sometime in our Christian walks, we have to stop, just stop everything and go before the Lord and just be quiet and let him minister to us. And that's hard to, de to do today because we live in such a, a busy world with such all these we're bombarded constantly. And, um, you know, we, we just go back to business as usual. And it's, it's, you can see the effect of it on the church. You know, today we think, in most churches, people think if you're prospering in your business or you're prospering in your personal life or whatever, God must be blessing you. You must be really spiritual because you got more money than other people. And, and boy, that's, that's, that must be God's blessing on your life. And that's not always true. That's not always true. Um, and so our relationship with the Lord is what is suffering here because we put such a, you know, whether it's the health, wealth, you know, churches that are pushing this, you know, boy, the more money you give to my ministry, God will bless you more. That's their mentality. And, and that's just not right. That's not what the Bible says. Um, so they take it out of context and they, they change it and, and contort it to what they can benefit from. And so why did God bring his judgment on his own people? Remember, this is Israel. This is his covenant people. These are the people that he said that he would never forsake. He would never cast them away. But here he's bringing this awful judgment upon them. 
And he's done it many times, by the way. Why does this happen? We just saw, really, I think it's, it's, it's a form of God's judgment. What happened to Israel last month? You know, they need to turn back <laughs> to the Lord. They need to have their heart, their hard hearts softened. And sometimes that happens through tragic events. Um, why is God allowing this to happen? Why will this day of the Lord, as the Bible says, why will this come upon Israel? And this will be the worst Holocaust. You thought, you know, the Holocaust was horrible. You thought uh, October 7th was horrible. That's nothing. That's paled in comparison to what's going to happen in the end times of the day of the Lord to Israel. So why is God allowing this to happen? Well, here in Amos, we, clear, we see very clearly from chapter 4 all the way to chapter 9. We, we see these clear-cut reasons why God would not only judge Israel, but anyone, for that matter. And so the New Testament, remember, says judgment must begin where? The house of God, right? Sometimes we forget that. You know, we're home praying, God, get those politicians, those evil politicians, get this, get that. But you know what? It has to start with us. It has to start with our own hearts. And we often think that God's going to do this due to the unbelieving world all around us, all this judgment. But we fail to understand that really he, he is not in a judgment sense as far as our salvation goes, but in a disciplinary way, he will judge us if we are actively in sin, if we are actively doing something that is not uh, giving him honor, and we continue down that path, and our hearts grow hard to, to God's reprovement or anything, and we just say, I'm going to do it anyway, because you know what? I'm going to heaven. My sins are forgiven. God's going to discipline me. And part of that discipline may feel like judgment. It's not condemnation. See, people think they get confused. Oh, there's no, there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ. But sometimes God does lower the bar as far as judgment goes. So follow along as we read chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. And we'll just read through this and see how far we get, and we'll finish it up next week. But in Amos chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Hear this word. This is a prophet speaking, and he's saying, Hey, you know what? Here it is. It's from the Lord. It's not just this farmer talking. But look at what he says. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husband, so he's talking about their wives, <laughs> calling them cows, that's pretty crazy, uh, bring that we may drink. Um, you can tell Amos was not a polished prophet. He was not somebody that was really concerned about being politically correct. He calls these people out. Uh, verse 2, the Lord God has sworn by his holiness that, behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. And you shall go out through the breaches, each one straight ahead, and you shall be cast out into Harmon, declares the Lord. Come to Bethel and transgress, to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened and proclaim freewill offerings. Publish them. For so you love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord God. 
I gave you cleanness of teeth in all of your cities and lack of bread in all of your places. He's beginning to list off these judgments. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Look at how many times he says this here. Yet you did not return to me. I, I will also, I also withheld grain from you when there were yet three months to the harvest. I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another city. One field would have rain and the field on which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. He's saying, how much do I have to do? Verse 9, I struck you with blight and mildew, your many gardens and your vineyards. It's a very plush area. Like I said, they were living very prosperously. Your figs and your olive trees, the locusts devoured. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I sent, I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword and carried away your horses. I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Things got really, really bad by the hand of the Lord. Verse 11, I overthrew some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. Think about that. Think about the judgment that came upon Sodom and Gomorrah. He's saying, you know what? I, I, I did the same thing to some of you. And you were as a brand plucked out of the burning, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Verse 12, therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what, his, what is his thought, who makes his morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. Father, we ask that you would open our eyes to these truths tonight as we just kind of peruse our way through these several verses and see really what this main reason was here, the return to the Lord did not happen. And so, Father, we pray that you would just help us to apply these to our own lives. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first thing here is the corruption was serious in verse 1. Um, notice he, he behold or hear the word. He's a prophet. He's saying, hey, thus saith the Lord. This corruption was very, very, very serious. And it's, it's hard to see it in the midst of prosperity. It's hard to see it when everybody's bank accounts are full, their cupboards are full, everybody's you know, fine that way. It's hard to see the hardness of somebody's heart in that kind of thing. And that's true of our culture, like I said previously. People have a tendency to conclude that because of prosperity, that individual is walking with God. And so the end justifies the means. So they look at somebody who's, who's you know, one of these health and wealth teachers, Benny Hinn or whoever, and they say, wow, he's so rich. He's got so many people following. That must be God's blessing upon his life. And that's just plain wrong. That's not what the Bible says at all. Uh, because some people, I hear it even in, in conservative churches sometimes, that prosperity is a sign that we're really walking with the Lord. But the Bible doesn't say that. Because the Bible says just the opposite, actually. It says, who prospers? The wicked. Remember Psalms? The wicked prosper. Why, did they, why are you allowing the wicked to prosper, God? Um, in fact, martyrs of the ages 
say, Lord, how long do we have to suffer while the wicked, what, prosper, right? And we can see that in our, our modern day culture even. We see people who are, even in our own government, making millions and millions and millions of dollars are setting themselves up for the rest of their life at the cost of everybody else. And they're getting away with it. It's very frustrating. We need to be very, very careful here when we look at these things. Have we compromised in some way and thus joined in this prosperity of, of the wicked? It's truly a commitment to God that has brought us all this, all this uh, things that we have, that we enjoy. Is it truly that, or is it just us being worldly? <laughs> it may be a test of God, like it was a test of God to Israel. God blessed Israel, but remember back in Deuteronomy, he told them about the test. He said, I'm going to prosper you, I'm going to, and, and I want to bless you. And he would make everything really good. Why? So that he could see whether they would remember the Lord in the midst of of their prosperity. Sometimes God blesses us to see, well, let's see. Now that you have money in the bank and you're not worried over things and you have, you know, blessings in your relationships and financially and business and everything, boy, are you still going to church? Are you still honoring the Lord? And so first point here under that is their apathy was caused by a false sense of security. Because all of everything was going well, they had a false sense of security, as most people do. That's where he says there, you cows of Bashan that are on the mountain of Samaria. Um, they were apathetic. They were just filled with apathy. They had a, a false sense of security. Um, sometimes people read this and they say, well, that's just Amos being this shepherd and he's out there looking at cows all day and so he goes and he sees these wives of these leaders and they're portly i guess you could say and he says hey, they're like cows okay some people say that i don't think he's necessarily calling them a bunch of cows however back then the the idea of a, of a cow wasn't something that was to be related to a cow was not a, a blessing because cows really didn't do a whole lot. And so when you look at this Hebrew text and you study the passage, you know, a cow in ancient times, it was a picture of apathy. It was a picture of really indifference and, and complacency. And one of the things he mentions, the ones in, in Bashan there, uh, you know, when you when you head over in Israel, you come out of that valley and you head toward the Jordan River, you see all these beautiful hills and they're just, it's very lush, it's gorgeous and the Golden Heights, all that stuff. It's just amazing, uh, very, very prosperous area, fruitful. And it tells us that in ancient times, it's true even today. Today, Israel is, they have some of the, 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 the world's best vineyards over there. And, and they have some of the, the finest, well, I don't drink wine, but they have some of the finest wine in the world over there. And, you know, the cattle and the cows produce some of the, the best meat in all of the world, even today. And it was true back then as well. And so what he's speaking here about is their apathy, like the cows who sit around all day. They don't do much. All they do is they get fed. 
Um, the Bible teaches that it's a picture of something far different than, than maybe what we just think in our own. You know, they had a false sense of security, and he's attacking them for that. If you look over at chapter 6, verse 1, I think you'll see this point here. He says, Woe to those who are at ease in Zion, and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first nations to whom the house of Israel comes, pass over to Calneh and see, and from there go to Hamath the great, and then go down to Gath and the Philistines of the Philistines. But you notice there, he says, hey, you're at ease. You're, you're filled with apathy, at ease in Zion. Their trust is in the mountain of, of Samaria. And so it's a little different picture there. Um, you know, they're enjoying these, these <laughs> cows of Bashan. These ladies are enjoying all of their, uh, you know, blessings, their material blessings in this prosperous area. But in fact, their corruption was so serious and their apathy and their indifference to God was so serious. They had this, this false sense of security. Like, look at us. We got everything. God must be on our side. And yet it was just the opposite. And the point is, to put it another way, is that these women of, of Samaria here were on a level of a simple cow. That's what Amos is telling them to be direct. They saw only their own needs, focused on all their physical needs, their own material needs. They didn't care about anyone else. Uh, one commentator says this, he wrote a, a commentary on I, Isaiah, and he wrote a, a, a remark con concerning this verse. He said, women are the trendsetters in society, whether we like it or not. They have ever been the final guardians of morals, fashions, and standards, and it was no different in Samaria. And so these ladies kind of set the temperature in the room, and their apathy is part of what really led them to a lot of this corruption that filled their society, even though they were very prosperous. Uh, it, they were revealing, Amos is revealing that, you know what, everything looks good, but you know what, down below, the roots are decaying. The roots are decrepit. But also their attitudes, the second thing, um, their attitudes toward those in need. Look at what he says. These, these people, they oppress the poor, and they crush the needy. In other words, they have, no, they have no concern for these people who don't have as much as they have. Uh, they have so much self-indulgence. Their emphasis is on their own self-importance to the point where they don't care about anybody else. And um, if, if those other people cannot contribute to their lifestyle somehow, they don't have anything to do with them. And we see that today in our society. I mean, it's, it, it's so easy to not care about somebody who's going through maybe a difficult circumstance other than maybe what you've ever experienced or perhaps because of their own condition in their own life. Uh, they don't meet your standards of what you want to relate to, and so you just don't deal with that person. We have to be very, very careful with that because he, he shows us here that it's important that we do that. It, it connects very strongly to a, a sanctity of life issue where somehow we argue that people, because of age or ability or handicaps or appearance, are no longer needed or wanted. 
That's, that's the idea in our society today. It really is. Um, and we have to be careful with that. We have to be guarded about that. Every life is precious. And that's what's going on in that society with all their economic prosperity and their military might. And that's what was wrong. The attitudes toward those in need, that really reveals somebody's heart. You know, when, you, when you're, you're so cold-hearted that you can't spend a few moments encouraging someone who is needy in your life somehow. And I'm not saying you just go out and give away money. That's stupid to do that, frankly. You know, you can meet people's needs in other ways. Um, I mean, you don't want to give a drug addict a bunch of money, right? I mean, that's not going to work well for them. So you don't want to enable people. But at the same time, I think that we have just grown very, very cold toward that. It's easy just to turn around, turn away and walk by. You know, you see it all the time. We were down at Costco the other day. and We're leaving Costco and there's a lady out there with a sign. It's like, I don't even want to read the sign. <laughs> don't even want to read it. Because most times, these are professional people out there just making money. Um, but at the same time, we have to make sure that we're not growing so cold-hearted when someone comes across our path and God leads someone across our path that has a legitimate need. We don't just discount that as well. And so we have to be very wise in that. Um, you know, it's like the priest, the Levite, and the Good Samaritan story, right? <laughs> That's kind of the, the whole the whole gist of it. It's easy just to walk by somebody who's in need. Um, somebody should do something, but nobody does anything. And so the Bible says, if you see your brother in need, what do you do? And it says your brother, so it's talking about someone in Christ, obviously. You don't just say, hey, be warm and filled. God bless you, brother. No, you, you meet their need somehow, if you can. Um, third thing here that really centers in the on their problem here is how corrupt this was their apathy was caused by a false sense of security their attitudes toward those in need revealed the corruption of their own heart and then they had alcoholism going on it was their constant desire it says there who say to your husbands bring that we may drink and it's not talking about water okay it's not talking about water um Basically, the, the word, some translations say, say to your masters, okay, it's referring to pretty much, most people agree to, to husbands. Uh, it could be translated Lord, you know, but no, wives, not that you have to call your husband Lord, don't do that. But, you know, back in the day, that's kind of where the same word. Um, and it could be very well that Amos's way of condemning the lack of spiritual leadership in the lives of the husbands of these women is being addressed here. Because, I mean, for, for a lady to be classified as a cow and then just to order her husband to bring me more to drink, not to be concerned with those who are poor. As a matter of fact, they're oppressing the poor and they crush the needy. That doesn't give a very good picture of that, that woman. And so Amos is being very upfront here. And the men instead are just going along with it rather than put their foot down and say, no, this isn't right. You know, they're the ones that are bringing the liquor they want, the food they want to eat, and, you know, eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die kind of mentality. And so it's, it's very, very important that we understand that. And so, you know, we have to realize that, you know, this is, this is something that has... Um, Alcohol, basically, 
has, has ruined so many lives in the world today. I think of my own family and I think of the consequences of people drinking alcohol in my own family. It's just, you know, it's hard to deal with sometimes. And you know what? As Christians, sometimes we we want to just say, well, it doesn't, that's, that's fine. You know, it calms my spirit or it does this or it does that. Well, look, if you need to drink anything or take anything to calm yourself, then you need to focus on your relationship with the Lord. You really do. Because God should be sufficient. Christ should be sufficient to meet all those needs, whatever they are. You don't need to put something externally into your body that will control you. As a matter of fact, Ephesians says, don't do that, right? Um, don't be controlled by, by alcohol or any other substance for that matter. So we have to, we have to think of that. And so here he's saying that, you know what? Um, their return is not happening because their corruption was so serious. It was so serious. Look at verses 2 to 3, and he kind of confirms here that this judgment was coming from the Lord. He's saying this is coming from the Lord. Uh, it isn't an alternative, kind of a creative alternative for him, or he's just suggesting this. God says, the days shall come upon you. The days are coming upon you. And for those who um, like the details, here's some of them. First of all, in verse 2, he talks about the holiness of the Lord guarantees that judgment. It's coming. The Lord God has sworn, what's it say? By his holiness. By his holiness. He guarantees it. God can't just turn a blind eye. We think sometimes as Christians that, you know, oh, we're covered by the grace of Jesus and all our sins are paid for, so we're just going to do whatever we want and God's going to be okay with it. No, he won't. He will not. God is a holy God. And so here he's telling his own people, look, I guarantee you that judgment is coming because I've tried everything to get your attention and it hasn't worked. And it's easy to forget that, that, that quality of our Lord, it's, his, it's his, in his essential nature. It's not just a simple attribute of him. It's who he is. He is holy. He's set apart. It's really an issue of deity. If God wasn't holy, guess what? He wouldn't be God. He can't just overlook sin. That word holy, what's it mean? It means to be separate. God is separate from sin. And he also is separate from all the material and physical creation. He is not just one of us. He's not the man upstairs. Okay, he is God. He isn't like us. And guess what? He never will be like us. We are not God and we will never be God. We won't be little gods in heaven. There's no such, I mean, worse heresy involved than, than the idea that somehow, as humans, we become God. And you hear it. You hear it taught today in a lot of the charismatic movements. And they take Scripture and they twist it to make us think that somehow, when we get our glorified body, we're, we're going to be little gods. Um, holiness is that which makes God who he is. He's not, it's not just one of his attributes. It's not just a characteristic. It's, it's, it's essential to who God is. God is separate in a fundamental sense from everything that he created, including, guess what, us. He's separate from us. It's interesting, at the place where the Lord dwelt in 
the, the worship of the tabernacle in, in the temple, what do they call it? They call it the what? The Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies. And you look at Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah saw the Lord sitting on the throne high and lifted up, what did the, the seraphim angels say? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. It's the manifestation of who he is. You can't get away from it. In other words, the holiness of the Lord guarantees judgment is coming. God can't do anything else if we won't return to him. That's why as Christians, he says, you know what? If you sin, just confess it. Just confess it. Just come to the Lord and say, Lord, you know what? I'm going to say the same thing about this sin that you say. It's wrong. And I'm sorry, and I apologize, and fill me with your spirit once again. Help me to live in a way that's honoring to you. But so many times we dig our heels in, and then God has to act. Um, we hear it all the time, but sometimes we don't believe it. We think that somehow we can get away with it, that somehow God is not going to discipline us, or God's not going to hold us accountable for these things that we do, but he will. And so he talks about the holiness, and then he talks about the hooks that describe what will happen, and it reveals that they will try to resist this coming judgment in verse 2. It says, when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. In other words, they're not going to welcome this judgment. And as believers, we don't welcome God's discipline in our lives. We don't Oh, yes, Jesus, you know, please discipline me more. No, we try to get out of it. Um, we try to resist God's judgment. But I want you to know that God's got some hooks and he's going to use, and it's obviously a fishing illustration here. It says he'll take you away with hooks. So we don't have any mistakes about it, he will do this. Isn't it interesting that fish, they don't want to get caught with a hook and fried in a pan. But what do they want? They want the bait that's on the hook. That's how you fish, right? You don't just put an empty hook in there and a the fish comes, oh, there's a hook, I want to bite into that. No, you got to put some bait on it. And some of us don't understand that all this prosperity, all this blessing that God has allowed in our lives, sometimes it's an enticement. <laughs> it's a test. God wants us to understand that we didn't receive any of it on our own. And, and that's where sometimes we make the, the mistake. We think it's our own initiative. This is why we have this or this is why we have that. Uh, 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says, what do you have that you didn't receive from the Lord? Right? That's what we should all be saying. Well, you don't understand, Pastor. I, I work hard for that. Well, yeah, but who gave you the job? See, as God's child, he, he provided that job for you. Um, or 1 Timothy 6 basically says, you brought nothing into this world, and what? You're not going to take anything out. You know, very, very simple. Um, so having food and clothes, we should be content. That godliness with contentment is great gain. And the Bible is filled with this. 
And a lot of us, because unfortunately we don't want to repent, we won't return to the Lord when we get off on the wrong path, and we think somehow because of the prosperity we have in our lives that we've accomplished it, we did it, we went to school, we learned the skills, we got the job, we achieved it, we got the money, and now we can just forget about the Lord. That happens all the time in people's lives. But he's the source of it all, is he not? He truly is. And so when we hear of judgment, we're going to fight against it. We're going to resist it. We're going to even say to people, no, 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 this, this isn't judgment from the Lord. God doesn't judge his people. It's just a little turn of events. You're just hitting a little rough patch in your Christian walk. Don't worry about it. God's trying to get our attention. He really is. I mean, I love that about God, that God doesn't just let us go down a path that's going to ultimately harm us and hurt us. You know, he, he, he says, no, you know what? I'm not going to let you do that. I love you too much. He's a lot more patient than any of us are, that's for sure. But God's trying to get us to turn back to him, to get our attention, focus back on him. And sometimes there are little things in our lives. Sometimes there are conflicts with people. Sometimes there's financial issues or health problems. Whenever we get a problem we can't handle, God brings those to get our attention. I, I really believe that. And it's a call, it's a cry from the heart of God to say, come back, come back to me, come back to me. Return to the Lord. But clearly, they're going to fight against it. They're going to explain to everybody, don't worry, it's a little setback here and there. Don't worry about that. God will bless you. Um, you might want to think about this again, because God uses all things, right, for his glory, the good, the bad, the ugly. So the holiness of God, the hooks of God that he uses in the Holocaust in verse 3 that will come will bring severe results. He says, and you shall go out through the breaches, each one straight ahead, and you shall be cast out into harm and declares the Lord. You're going to go out at the, the breaches, meaning broken down walls. Remember, they would fortify their cities with walls. Well, there were whole walls that were around Samaria, which now you can see evidence there, even if you go over there, of the destruction from them. And those walls are going to be so broken down that people can just come and go, kind of like our southern border. <laughs> and he says, you'll cast every cow that was before her, cast him into the palace says the Lord. The very place you wouldn't think there would, would, would there would be a cow because everything is just so open and nobody cares. The cow's going to just wander right into a palace. But the point is there is no wall. There's no keeping them out. God's going to smash this capital into pieces. And the Bible not only says that, so does history. Assyria goes into details in the Syrian documents about their attack into Israel and about how they destroyed Samaria. It's part of history. This actually happened. Samaria thought it, they had an impregnable fortress that no one could penetrate it. If you've ever driven through the Samaritan mountains, you'll see there where it sits, and you, you understand 
this problem. They thought they were secure. No one can get us. We're protected. But God says it's going to be so terrible, all those walls you thought would protect you are going to be smashed down so that even a cow can wander around anywhere he wants. And the third thing here is the commentary. The commentary on the religious practices reveals that they deserve this coming judgment. Look at verses 4 and 5. Come to Bethel and transgress, to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. So it's a commentary on their religious practices. They, they were still practicing their religion. But it shows they deserve the judgment of God because their heart wasn't in it. Amos is actually mocking it here. God is not talking here. Amos is talking. Come to Bethel and sin. God wouldn't say that. Amos is saying that. God doesn't urge anyone to sin. He's commenting on what they do. He's saying this is such a mockery. And he says their sinful works continue in verse 4. Come to Bethel and transgress, to Gilgal, multiply transgression. In other words, their sinful works did not stop. They just, they, they upped the ante. They invited others to join in with them. Sounds like Romans 1. You read Romans 1, that's the kind of culture we have today. I mean, sometimes that's true. I mean, when we, maybe when we were younger, we wanted to do something wrong. Sometimes we identify others who would be willing to do that wrong thing with us. <laughs> Right, so it's not just us doing it now. Now, well, Johnny did it too with me, you know, so we can kind of shed the blame around the room. Misery loves company, we say. Well, guess what? So do sinners. So do sinners. That's why the Bible says, be careful. Be careful who you hang out with. Be careful who you spend time with. Why? Because bad company corrupts what? Good morals. All right, it's just not going to work out well for you if you do that. I'm just trying to reach him for the Lord. That's fine. That's important to do that. Invite him to church. Share the gospel with them. But don't partake of their sinful behavior. Don't even affirm their sinful behavior. Well, they'll think I'm a square. They'll think I'm, you know, who cares? That's exactly what they're supposed to think. They're, they're supposed to think you're peculiar as a believer, that you don't identify with what they're doing. And so they're... they're Sinful works continue as they invite others, and he's mocking their invitation to come to Bethel. He's like, hey, you know, that's where the golden calf was, right? Transgress and Gilgal, Gilgal or Gilead, multiplied transgressions. They wanted others to participate in their pagan festivals with their emphasis on sexual immorality, idolatry, drunkenness. All these things were going on. But nobody cares. <laughs> you know, it's just like here in Samaria. Hey, you know what? I, I just give me a drink, husband. I, I need I need to calm my nerves. Give me something to drink. So their their works were sinful. Their outward worship covered up their sin. 
Notice what they were doing in verse 4. It says they were what? Bringing their sacrifices what? every morning. Every morning. I've seen it in my life. I've seen it in the lives of others. We all do it to a certain extent. We're all hypocritical. We're not perfect in our Christian walk. And you know what? It's very possible to have a, an outward form of worship that really covers up a sinful attitude or maybe something that's wrong in your life. Because if you just stopped coming to church, that'd be kind of obvious. You don't want that. And he says, bring your sacrifices every morning. This is, this is mocking it. He's not saying this, oh, this is a good thing. He's saying, you're doing this, but boy, you're doing it with a rotten heart. And you think somehow if you keep on doing this, what, what Amos is trying to get them to see, if you keep on doing this, God's going to sweep under the rug all the other bad stuff you're doing. That's how we think sometimes, is it not? If I do five good things and one bad thing, well, then I got to do more. You know, that's how we think. We think it's like this scale, and that's not the way it works. Because he's not going to sweep anything under the rug. God's a holy God, as we just said. Not only their, their works are continuing, their worship covers up their sin, but the worth of their financial contributions would not substitute for true, true worship of the Lord. He says, and your tithes every three days. Some translations say every three years. Uh, either way, Amos is saying, well, um, Go ahead and bring them, <laughs> but they're not doing what you think they're doing. <laughs> you know, sometimes people give, unfortunately, out of guilt. I've seen it. And it's like they think somehow God needs their money. And they think if I just give enough, that then God will, you know, overlook what I'm doing <laughs> that he says I shouldn't be doing. See, all of our financial contributions, whether it's this church or another ministry, whatever it is, do not substitute for true worship of the Lord. They just don't. Remember the widow who gave, what, two mites? She gave all she had. And Jesus said she gave more than the rich men who were bringing their tithes into the treasury and doing what the law said. But if you're covering up what's wrong in your heart, you haven't really returned to the Lord. Don't think your financial contributions are going to make any difference with the Lord because they're not. And the last thing here under this point is the hypocritical way of giving to God revealed the kind of people they really were. Look at verse 5. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened. Um, in the Old Testament law, it says they're in a sacrifice of thanksgiving with leaven. This happens to be the week of, of, of Passover unleavened bread. You're supposed to be eating matzah all, all week long when they have this celebration. It's unleavened bread. There's no yeast in it. Um, it's a symbol of sin, yeast is, in the Scriptures. And it's interesting, in Leviticus 7, verse 12, it says the sacrifice of thanksgiving that's mentioned here is to be done with unleavened bread. So you see there's a, a subtle thing going on here. Proclaim and publish the, the free offerings. Um, 
The Bible says, don't, don't do all that. You don't proclaim your free will offerings. You don't get up and say, look at how much I'm giving today. The Bible says, don't even let your what, left hand know what your right hand's doing. <laughs> they were doing just the opposite. And so Amos is mocking them for this. He's calling them out on it. They were trying to get acceptance. They were trying to get approval from, not even from God, from people. That's how messed up they were. They were more concerned about what people thought of them than they did their own God. And God revealed the kind of people they were. Their sacrifices were not clearly obedient to God. They were doing exactly what God said not to do. And they were going around telling everybody what they were doing. And he said, you know what? You're, you're just... Children of Israel here, and, and he said, This is just like you. This is just this is what you do. Why are you doing this? That's why he says, Oh, so you love to do, oh people of Israel. That's not a that's not a compliment. <laughs> that's meant to be an insult from Amos, declares the Lord. And I think that sometimes we forget, frankly. That you know what, God, it means so much more what's going on in our heart than it does outwardly. And sometimes we get involved in things, we start doing things, and and you know we're thinking somehow that's earning favor with God. That doesn't earn favor with God. Um, our good works, our our ministry, everything that we do should be an overflow of our heart of thanksgiving to the Lord. And they were doing just the opposite here. Well, what are the consequences here? The fourth thing. The consequences, which God brought from time to time, did not cause them to return to him. He covers this in verses 6 to 11. And he goes through a bunch of different things here, and I listed them there for you. Um, and it's just a series of statements. And he starts to say, you know what? You haven't returned to me. And I did this. You haven't returned to me. I did this. I haven't returned to me. There's seven things here. So let's mention these quickly. First one is deprivation of food, <laughs> verse 6. He says, I gave you cleanness of teeth. In other words, you had nothing to put in your, your teeth to make them dirty. <laughs> you had no food. And lack of bread in all your places. Yet, what's he say? You didn't return to me. So God tried to starve them back. That didn't work. Guess what? It didn't work in the wilderness either, did it? Verse 6 mentions there the want of bread. Um, I mean, nobody, well, maybe maybe we should reevaluate this thing with the Lord. You know, we're not getting anything to eat here. Uh, we're getting a little hungry. Oh, maybe we're just having a bad year. You know, we just want to explain away things. Even when God gives us warning signs, we just want to explain them away. Second thing there is drinking water was scarce. Not only food, but drinking water. Verse 7, I also withheld the rain from you. Um, verse 8, you won't be satisfied even though you go to a different city and try to drink it there. And that shows us that God what, controls the weather, God controls the climate. We've been saying that for weeks now. But he will withhold the rain. God's able to do that. He's all-powerful. You know, These aren't natural disasters that happen. Sometimes disasters happen, and they're horrible to see, whether it's an earthquake or a, um, 
tsunami, whatever it might be. But you know what? They happen at the hand of God. They really do. And so you wonder, you know, sometimes we, we don't, we don't want to think that way. Would God withhold water? Would God withhold food? Yeah, he, he did in this case. Also, the devouring of fruit and plants did not cause him to return. He said he, he struck them in verse 9 with blight and mildew. And like I said, this was a very, this was the source of really their prosperity. You know, this is where they gave, it'd be like going out in the valley here in Fresno, the valley there, and, and wiping everything out agriculturally. That would harm a lot of people globally, not just out there in the valley, right? It would have, it would have long-lasting effects. And God is saying, look, I allowed this to happen. I've smitten you with this, and I, I'm taking credit for it. I did it, God says. But guess what? You didn't return to me. You did not return to me. Verse 10, the diseases of Egypt did not cause them to return. I've sent among you the pestilences after the manner of Egypt, just like they had in Egypt. And it's, it's pretty amazing that this, this statement of promise to God of his people um, that they would walk in obedience to him, and and yet they violated that. And and uh, um, you know, if they just would walk, none of these none of these pestilences would would come upon them. But they didn't do it, and so it's 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 sad to see this happen to people, but it does. And um, and, and now he says it to to Samaria. You're, you sowed the wind, you're reaping the whirlwind, you're involved in all these pagan practices, all this temple prostitution, all this weird stuff's going on, drunkenness, everything, and you think you're going to escape it, you're not. All you have to do is return to me, come back to me, I can heal you. God promises to heal Israel if they would turn and trust in him, but they didn't. And so it gets worse. Verse 10, the death of their young men. you think at some point these people would wake up, right? But they don't. The death of their young men did not cause them to return. I killed your young men with the sword. Sent them off to battle. God allowed many of these defeats to happen, and young men died in these battles. He used the enemies of Israel as a tool to bring this judgment upon Israel. He tells us, even in Isaiah, he says that he uses other nations to execute his judgment upon his people. But they still did not return to the Lord. Verse 10, again, the defilement of horrible smells did not cause them to return. I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils. That's kind of graphic, isn't it? I mean, but that's pretty bad. You know, have you ever been driving somewhere and you don't have the circulation thing turned off, you know, so the air coming from the outside and, you know, sometimes we go over to uh, Harris Ranch and you're driving past those cows on a bad day. Man, it's bad. Sometimes even if you have a little circulation thing off, you still smell it, right? It's just bad. It reeks. Uh, up in Idaho, we were just up there. We were driving to the airport. And I'm like, whoa. And they have a sugar beet factory up there and it creates this horrible... I mean, sometimes it's really bad. Sometimes it smells like peanut butter, so that's not bad. But it's just, it depends on the humidity in the air or whatever. And I mean, they just, Will told me they spent $14 million, this company, 
to revamp everything so that they can produce these sugar beets without any smell going into the into the community because it's just a it's just a horrible smell and it's like you you know you can't get away from it it's just everywhere um and this is what what god did and you, you think of this this that you know all these these things that happened to them and it got worse in spite of all their wealth or prosperity their false sense of security it was awful and then the destruction was like he says they're Sodom and Gomorrah and that did not cause them to return either I threw overthrew some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah it wasn't widespread like that it was only in certain places here. It says, I've overthrown you, but it, it was a series that had invaded, knocked off many of their cities, wiped them out, really. But God said, I did it. God's behind it all. Why? Why is God doing this to his own people? Because he wants them to repent. He wants them to turn back to him. But guess what? They're not going to do it. They didn't do it. And then the last thing here in our outline, the final challenge from the Lord in verses 12 to 13, it gave them the opportunity to repent, just like God always does. Verses 12 says, Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. Wow. Yeah. For behold, he who forms the mountains and he describes himself and creates the wind and declares to man what is in his thought. In other words, I know exactly what you're thinking. Who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth. The Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. Three things here. First of all, the preparation that was needed. The preparation for what? To meet God. That's, that's what he's saying. Um, it's often a phrase used to get ready for battle. That's really what that kind of means. It means prepare to face God's judgment, first of all, and also to prepare to meet him with repentance. There's two choices there. The first one is to prepare to face God's judgment. The second is prepare him, prepare to, to meet him in repentance. That's up to us. Those are the only two choices. Either God will be your judge or God will be your savior. And the second thing here, the power that they would be facing, he describes this. He says it's the power of the Lord himself. It's, it's the power of creation. He who forms the mountains and, the, the, and creates the wind. He's saying, you know what, Israel, do you know who you're up against here? I am doing all these things to win your heart to, so you will turn back to me and if, in case you forget who I am, I am the one who created you. I am the all-powerful one. I am the one who has the power of control even over what you're thinking. I know exactly what you're thinking. That's a scary thought, <laughs> that God knows what we think all the time. And he says, I have the power of conquest over everything who makes the morning darkness treads on the heights of the earth. What's God saying? He says, I am all-powerful. I am the sovereign God. You don't want to mess with me, Israel. You need to 
understand your relationship with me. But you understand that I'm a powerful God. And the last thing there, the person before whom they would stand is none other than the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. He makes it very clear to them that you know what? This is, this is who I am. I am a holy God. I am a God of power. I'm a God of might. But I'm also a loving God, and I'm a patient God, and I'm willing to over and over and over again appeal to your heart to do the right thing. And here you have the Holy Spirit speaking through Amos to the people. And what's Amos saying? It's not too late. It's never too late. It doesn't matter how far you've turned from God, how long ago you turned away from God. Prepare to meet your God, and, and you, can, you can do that even now. Just it takes one step. It just takes one small little move back toward God and say, here I am. You know what? I, I want to restore. I, I want to come back. I want you to heal me. I, wa I want to have a relationship with you. I'm, I'm tired of running from you, God. Don't continue down the path away from God. It's not going to work out well for you. Come back to him. Return to him. That's what repentance is. That's what God desires of us. Father, we thank you for tonight. Thank you for Amos' message to Israel, his people, Lord, who were under this severe judgment because of their willful disobedience before you, a holy God. Lord, it's easy for us to ignore that. It's easy for us to think that, oh, we'll just go on with our life and do what we want and, and then one day die and go to heaven. But Lord, it's so much more than that. Whatever's going on in our own lives, surely we could sit down and we could justify it. We could explain it away. We could rationalize it. We could defend it. But in the end, we're, we're wasting our time because we're getting further and further away from the one who loves us, and that's you. And so, Lord, we ask you from our heart, help us, Lord. Help us to come back to you in a fresh way. We thank you. We praise you for your patience with us and for the love that you extend to us as your people. And, Lord, even in our faithlessness and even in our disobedience, Lord, you, you remain faithful. And, Father, we thank you for that. And I pray that if there's any in this room who needs to turn back to you and to reacquaint themselves with that relationship that they have with you, Lord, I pray that that would happen even tonight. Maybe there's some here that don't know you. They need to turn to you and ask you for forgiveness and declare their desire is to follow you, to follow your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came and died willingly for our sins and was raised on the third day, victorious over sin and death. Lord, we pray that you would do that work in each one of our hearts, whatever that work might be. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.